Good morning. My name is Jacqueline Boat. I'm going to read our scripture today. Um, and if you'd like to follow, I think it's on page 816 of your uh, Pew Bibles. I'll give you a second to look that up. I'm reading from Matthew 11:25 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, with that word still in your ears, I'd love to pray for us. Um, Just draw your attention back to two of those verses. Do you hear this is the good news? Jesus says, come to me, all all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, in my essence, am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, this morning we bring to you a huge bundle of things. Some of it's really pleasant and exciting. And some of it's really hard and painful. Some of our worlds got blown up this week in ways that will never be the same. Some of us have been carrying things for a really long time and we feel so fatigued. For some, we got some reprieve this week, and it feels like fresh air. There's just a mixture in the room. What we all carry together and share together is this common burden of living in a fallen and broken world, the weight of our own sin, the weight of the sin of those around us. So I pray you'd help us welcome this word this morning. Would it come um, as water to our souls? Would you grant faith to believe that you actually care enough about us to deal with the things that we've been carrying? Again, God, for some of us, it's been like decades. It's been 50 years. We've carried these same kind of burdens. And so would you give faith and help now for us to experience kind of your love in this room? Again, understanding that you're the kind of God who wants to lift the burdens of his people. So it's complicated, but it's beautiful. So, so would you help, help students, help parents, help those who are grandparents, help those who've never been married, help those who long to be married, help those who are in this room, God, who, need, who desperately, desperately, desperately need you, and that's, that's all of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I have looked forward to this passage for a long time, and in fact, we'll spend two weeks around this theme of rest. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but to stop and think about him as a God who gives rest to his people changes us. 
It maybe even shifts what you think he's like, that he would be concerned about that. And as we go into next week, we'll talk about the Sabbath, which is a command God gives to his people to actually rest. Not just stop if you can't handle it or stop if you're super tired or stop if you're weak and you're not like everybody else, but he commands all of us to stop and experience him meeting our needs and us resting. And so to talk about the gospel is actually to talk about the good news of a God who grants rest to his people. And I've looked forward to this because I know you're tired. I know you carry in your bodies and in your relationships and in your jobs and in our world and in your heart and in your past and in your fears of the future, you carry a lot of heavy, heavy loads. And so I want to just jump into this text because I think Jesus has a word for us and it's a word that he sees your burden and he's already done something on the cross to deal with it. And he's asking you to bring it to him so that he can help you carry it, so he can reorient it, so that you can actually experience him coming alongside of you in ways that his yoke feels easy and his burden light. So let me just draw your attention to the text. We're going to start kind of at the middle here in verse 28. I'm going to use five eyes. So kids in your packet, I think there's a, a word search and there's some blanks there. If you want to work your way through that, I'm going to use five eyes. Let me just give them to you now. I'll give them to you fast and then you can catch them as I say them again. We're going to talk about Jesus' invitation. We're going to talk about Jesus' initiative. We're going to talk about Jesus' identity Jesus' inclination and the impact of trusting him. So let me just start with this invitation. It's really clear here in verse 28. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Come to me, all who labor. And that all, I think, would kind of help us understand it's both everybody and it's every kind of heavy burden that we carry. He says, Come to me regardless of what your burden is. Can we just talk about different kinds of burdens? I don't know if you feel very burdened, but let me like stretch it out just a little bit. There are burdens you carry from things that have been done to you. There are voices you've heard. There's events that have happened. There's places where you've been harmed. You carry burdens. You might call it shame, things that have been done to you. There are burdens that you carry from things that you've done. Things that you have done maybe in reaction to some of that past pain where you tried to defend yourself or protect yourself or soothe yourself. And those things have actually added more burden. It's the burden of our sin. It's the burden of us trying to build an identity for ourselves. It's it's the way that we've hurt other people as we've tried to take from them. It's the ways in our nervousness as we kind of grasped for control. We we grabbed too hard on something and maybe either broke it or squeezed it or choked it in ways that actually harm to things around us. So there's burdens you feel because of things that you have done. There's burdens you have just because you thought you were going to be different. Your expectations provide a kind of burden to you. You thought you wouldn't repeat kind of the patterns of your family of origin. You thought you would be better than those around you. You thought you'd be the one to kind of fix this. Surely by now you'd be over that addiction. Surely by now you'd get your act together. Surely by now blank, there are these expectations you carry where you have a burden that you don't measure up to your own expectations. There's also burdens that just come from living in a fallen and broken world. Burdens of having a finite body. Burdens of a body that's winding down and a mind that's winding down. So we live under the curse of sin and the brokenness in our world. Not necessarily moral things that you've done, but just the effects of sin 
all around us. The Bible says the world, the flesh, and the devil are pressing in around us, and that creates a lot of burden. You, you carry burdens just from being human in a fallen and broken world. And some of you have a crushing burden that you've put on yourself of the expectations you think God has for you to be perfect and good enough to be worthy of being loved. There's a religious kind of burden that some of us grow up under, believing if I could just read my Bible enough, give enough money away, obey enough, be good enough, serve enough, be amazing enough, I could just do enough, then I would actually be loved. There's burdens from things done to you, burdens from sins that you've done, burdens from your own expectations, burdens from just living in a fallen and broken world, and burdens that have kind of this religious flavor to them. And Jesus says, hey, regardless of where the burden comes from, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And saying that all of us feel these burdens gives us permission to talk about the ways we've tried to deal with these burdens. Because you don't have to be a Christian to be concerned about these burdens, to, to feel the weight of them. It's all of us have strategies trying to soothe and to help. And what's fascinating is that in our normal attempts to lift the burdens on our own, we normally create more burdens. So your desire to soothe from the anxiety that you feel, not only does it not satisfy that anxiety, it actually leaves you more depleted. So the lie of pornography, that if you could just escape for a moment, you would get approval, actually leaves you with more shame and more empty and feeling more kind of distant from people. There's this moment that it soothes, but it compounds and actually adds more burden. So there's this burden that we kind of experience, and then there's these burdens that we experience because we've tried to lift them on our own. And that's exactly why Jesus came into our world. This is like shorthand for the gospel of why Jesus came. If you wonder what God is like, he's the kind of God who knows you carry burdens, and he wants to actually do something about it. And you might think he's the kind of God who puts more burdens on you. He's the kind of God who sets up traps or tricks for you to keep stumbling and falling. But hear Jesus' words that he's the kind of God who comes gentle and lowly in heart. He comes actually to take this yoke off of you and let you learn what it means to follow him in ways that the yoke of his discipleship actually feels easy. And he wants to give you a kind of rest for your souls. Did you see that in verse 29? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. Not just surface kind of rest, not just situational kind of rest, but deep, substantive rest at the core of who you are. Jesus actually came and invites us to be satisfied at the essence and at the deepest places of our heart. God is after not just removing your external circumstances but actually dealing with what's going on inside your heart. So he provides and offers you this deep rest. And again, this would be in contrast to the dehumanizing rest that sin tempts us with. Any allure that we've kind of engaged with saying, if I went to this thing or accomplished this or bought this or earned this or this, purpose, this person approved of me, if I just had this thing, then I would actually feel satisfied. I would feel at peace. I would have a kind of rest. And that dehumanizing rest, Jesus actually came to deal with the consequences of even that. So, so this is for all of us, and it's an invitation to what the scriptures would call salvation. 
This kind of rest that Jesus is talking about is a rest from striving, a rest from the effects of sin. All those places of burden Jesus came to deal with, like to lift our shame, to, to deal with our pain, to actually make a way for us to be right with God and remove the expectations of ourselves and others so that we could know that we're loved. And Christ actually came. The way he lifts this burden off of us is to take it upon himself. That's the good news of the gospel. So it's this invitation to all, and it's a deep, deep, deep kind of rest. It's the kind of rest that actually you long for. It's the kind of rest you wonder if it could actually be. It's the kind of rest that that you desperately, desperately need, but it can feel really confusing in this world. So, So there's this rest that we desire, and he invites all of us into it, and yet we have to come to him a certain way to get it. That's what he's talking about in verse 25 to 26. And here's what I want you to understand. This is the initiative of Jesus. He invites you. And what Jesus is going to say here is that he actually takes the initiative. There's two things that may have caught you kind of funny. One in verse 25 where he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. You're like, well, if he's offering rest, then why is he hiding this and you might read into this your entire story and go I feel like my whole life God's been hiding from me I've been seeking after him and I can't find him and so that can maybe trip you up and feel a little bit confusing the other part that feels kind of confusing is in verse 27 where he says that the the father knows him and he knows the father and that he reveals himself to those that he chooses he says so here's this thing I'm saying to you and Jesus kind of comments on this labor that can be lifted for all this rest is available and all are invited to it and yet he says there's a certain way that you have to come and he says you can't come as those who are learned and those who are wise he says i thank you father in verse 25 that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to little children i think this in essence is saying you can't come and get rest if you think you deserve it and you're trying to earn it The kind of rest he offers is the one that you only get when you recognize your dependence. And this idea of being like little children is the personification of this idea of knowing that I'm dependent, knowing that I'm I'm limited, knowing that I have needs, knowing that I can't make myself go. But all of us, since our parents were in the garden, have a desire to take off that sense of dependence and pull on our own independence and prove to God and to ourselves and to others that we don't need him, we can be fine on our own. And you might say, I've never used those words, but your actions actually show this self-reliance and this pervasive, insidious, insatiable desire to always prove yourself. To always earn and grasp. It's why shame is so familiar. It's why pride is so familiar. It's rooted in this desire for you to show yourself strong, learned and wise, he says. But he says, I've actually hidden these things from those and I've given them to children simply to say the pathway to have your burdens lifted is to actually understand your dependence. And he takes the initiative, right? That means we're in a receiving posture so to say that God is the one who gives initiative for this rest he's not saying it up like you go earn this you go prove this you go require this you go acquire this he's actually saying I want to come and give it to you like a parent gives things to their children and he says there is something about our hearts that is so broken that God has to actually choose to reveal himself to us So there's this doctrine of election inside this passage that can be kind of troubling if you just on the surface say, God's the kind of God who chooses some and not others. 
But if you understand the context of this passage, and every time election is actually given to us, it's always given as a comfort. It's always given as an assurance. It's always given as a background issue to why are there some who who are saved and rescued to receive God's mercy? Why are there some who, who even though they've been falling and they're breaking and they're in a mess, they actually endure to the end and are loved? Why are there some who, though they hate God, They actually have this moment where they turn and choose to love him. And what Jesus is showing us is it's his initiative to his enemies, which all of us are, to actually receive his love. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus says, I I thank you, Father, that it's like this, which keys for us that this is actually somehow good news. And here's why I think it's good news. It means in your awareness of your brokenness, it's not simply up to you to figure out a way for you to be lovable. We can actually acknowledge the depth of our brokenness is so severe that it requires God himself to move towards us to rescue and to save us. And Jesus actually says that's the way God has set it up. That's the brokenness of our hearts. And he is moving towards it. He said that, Father, I thank you that you've revealed this not to the strong and the wise and the mighty, but you've revealed it to children, which puts all of us in the space where we can receive. For those of us who will see ourselves as children, those who will see ourselves as dependent and needy, the invitation for salvation is for you. But if you insist on coming on your own terms, if you insist on coming with your own strength, your own wisdom, and your own understanding, you can't actually receive. You won't want to receive. You'll resist or manipulate or manage God rather than realize as a little child you are dependent. So here's the way the Bible talks. There are several things that are true, and there's some mystery in these. We are so rebellious and broken and dysfunctional and sinful. The Bible describes us as dead as, as enemies, as those who are far away from God. That's our human condition, both by birth and by choice. That's true. And we're so far from God, unless he moved towards us, we wouldn't choose him. We wouldn't come to him. That's how far. So a dead person has no affections to wake themselves up. God has to do something to our hearts. So that's a truth we see all throughout Scripture. The other truth we see is this pervasive call to believe, to come, to not hesitate. If you hear his voice today, come. And so election is a background issue that helps us understand why it is that I'm actually moving towards God. And he actually says in other passages, election humbles us. Because if we didn't just choose God because we were strong and mighty and powerful, but he chose us when we were dead in our sins, then where is there grounds for boasting at all? And there's a kind of rest that comes from receiving God's extravagant grace to his enemies. So scholars would talk about how these two realities of God has to move towards us so that we choose him and this wide call for all to choose him. They would talk about that in different ways of how those overlap, but both those truths are real. I think one of the best ways to understand those is to say, if I have a desire to respond to Jesus, it's because he's been merciful to me and he's stirring my heart. It's not an arrogant place where I'm earning this and proving this and figuring this out right. He says, it doesn't come from wisdom and from learning. And it's not that it's unrational, it's that it's supra-rational. It's more than just rational because a God who would die in our place to make a way for us to be forgiven and free does not make sense to your sinful, rebellious, callous, cold, dead heart. 
What makes a ton of sense and what the world keeps pushing on you from the day you were born is you've got to earn it, you've got to deserve it, you've got to prove yourself, you have to do more and more and more. And if you finally do enough, then maybe you'll be good enough for God to condescend and accept you. That is what the world pushes on us. That's where all those burdens come from is living into that lie and that false reality. And here the Bible comes and says, oh, God's the kind of God who takes on himself the burdens of his people. God's the kind of God who moves towards his enemies. God's the kind of God who takes dead, stony, callous hearts and awakens them so that his enemies might choose him. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not the way you would draw it up. The earning and deserving just as the narrative that we've lived into that makes a lot of sense which I think is why he says he didn't give this to people that were just like smart those who could connect dots those who had logic and reality in those spaces actually you've given a deeper kind of reality that comes from a dependence and a childlike faith which is the essence of faith but it's not like a faith that doesn't have ration at all to it it's just more than rational let me read one passage this is first Corinthians chapter 1 It's on page 952 if you want to flip over there. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Listen to what he says here. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That God died in your place to make a way for you to be right with God just seems ridiculous. What makes sense to you is if you're good enough, God loves you. And if you're bad enough, he doesn't love you. That makes a ton of sense. There's a kind of folly that comes in the cross of Jesus dying in our place. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then catch us in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's a lot in that passage, but one thing I'd love for you to see this morning, the burdens that we bear from living into the narrative that you should do something to save yourself, that you could do something to save yourself, is actually a faulty logic. And it's foolish because the Bible starts us out in a place where we are so dead in our trespasses and sins, so under God's curse, the weight of sin is so big that it actually deserves his judgment. From that place where the wages of sin is actually death, you couldn't do enough to earn love. But if you don't start there, if you start with we're basically good, you got a pretty good shot, you're better than most people, or at least you should be, that shame and pride, you might actually believe a logic that you could earn and deserve. But he says the cross actually makes foolishness out of the wisdom of the world that says, oh, why don't you do more? Why don't you try just a little bit harder? Why don't you do better than that person? Why don't you kind of trump your your parents in ways that you prove that you're actually worthy of love? That logic actually falls in on itself. It creates more burdens. And this passage says it actually makes us look foolish when we actually stop and ask, could I do enough to erase the stain of my sin? Could I do enough to actually unburden myself from the weight of all this? Could I prove enough, do enough, enough penance to actually earn it? And the answer throughout Scripture is no, no, no. And here's the good news of the gospel. And you don't have to. 
And that's where we struggle. The wise and learning goes, no, no, but I should do something because if I do something, then it adds to my value and esteem. And Jesus says, no, 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 come like a little child who knows he's dependent, who knows she is vulnerable, who knows they have needs. Come in that space. And those who come like that, those are the ones who actually God has revealed his love. They know that they have needs and they can respond to him. I grew up in a community that really struggled to understand how God's love and election could fit together. But if you start with the idea that we're under God's judgment and wrath, then it is the essence of his love that he awakens our heart and moves towards us first. And that he chooses us and he calls us to himself, even though we're undeserving. Right? We're one of those who weren't invited. One of those who don't belong, and yet Jesus comes and moves towards us. It actually shows his love that he would die in the place for his enemies, for rebels who actually set out to destroy him. And it's actually in his death and that he makes it way for us to be forgiven and free. This is the beauty of the gospel. So there's an invitation, and what we see also is that Jesus is the one who has the initiative. It's not learning and earning, it's you being dependent, which means someone has to give. Someone has to take initiative to give to a child. And we're so broken, we're so distorted, our hearts are so gone. Unless God actually reveals himself to us, we won't choose him. So he is the one who initiates. And I realize there's some complicated things in that, but would you just understand Jesus saying, I thank you that it's like this. And we actually now get his identity that helps us understand, because this might seem cold and callous to you. This might seem like a God that you don't actually want to follow, Which is why he goes on to say he's the kind of God who actually takes our yoke upon himself and he's gentle and lowly in heart. He's the one who actually gives us his righteousness so that we can be forgiven and free. So to all the voices in our head of this is not fair, that's not right, we go straight to the cross where we see the innocent one dying in the place for those who deserve his punishment and wrath. And we go, oh, he's he's that kind of God. And all the mysteries of how these two realities of God has to move towards us because we're so broken and dependent and anyone who will call upon him can be saved. The mystery of how those two realities fit, what's in the middle of them is the cross of Jesus. And it's the one who actually took upon himself our brokenness. And Jesus then tells us his identity. And he says two things. One, that he's one with the Father. That's what's going on in verses 25 and 26 and 27 where he, no one knows him except the Father and the Father knows the Son. That whole thing there is saying, I share a triune unity with the Father. He's saying that he's God. He's saying that he's good. He's saying that he's Lord over all. That's one part of his identity. So the one who could die on the cross in our place and the math doesn't work out that one would forgive many unless that one is actually God himself. Again, it's super logical. It's more than reasonable in that space. So he's not only God, but in his essence, he is gentle and lowly in heart. And to the degree that we hear doctrines in the scriptures and go, I don't like that. God shouldn't be like that. If I was like that, fill in the blank, we stop and go, yeah, he's not like me. There's something mysterious going on in the way that he is, and he reveals himself in his identity as one who is gentle and lowly. Just stop for a second. The one who spun the stars into existence, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, the one who sovereignly ordains everything, the one that we prayed actually kind of holds all the universe together, he in his essence is gentle and lowly. What must he be like? That he holds all the power in the universe and then he condescends to be born of a peasant girl in the first century to a poor family so that he might actually 
earn for us salvation by dying on the cross. And you wonder, is he loving? Is he good? Can I follow a God like this? Man, a God who would die in your place, a God who stands in the space of his enemies is actually not only worthy of love, it's beautiful. And if you hear that as an invitation, then Christ is revealing himself to you. He's helping you see your dependence as a child. He's calling you to himself. That's what it means to actually be a Christian, is to see the needs that we have in Christ meeting them. And he just says of his identity that he's the one who actually is gentle and lowly in heart. And if you come to him, he says in verse 29, that you will find rest again for your souls. He's not the kind of God that's just after your outward behavior. He actually wants your heart. He wants your soul. He actually wants to heal you and soothe you and take away the burden from the inside out, not just on the outside. All the other attempts to lift burdens on our own only add more pain. Jesus and Jesus alone has the power and the desire and the ability to move towards us to actually heal that deep, deep, deep place of, his, of our souls. So the identity is that he's God and the identity is that, that he's one who is gentle and lowly. And let me just camp there for a second and this is your fourth eye This is the inclination of his heart towards you is to come as one who's gentle and lowly. There's a great book out kind of by this title and the author just says, I think this is the only place where Jesus just says, this is actually who I am, not what I'm like, but who I am. He's identifying himself in his essence as one who is gentle and lowly in heart. So the one who calls you to himself is the one who at his essence is gentle and lowly in heart. I'm going to try to give an illustration that I think will make sense. The Bible is after transformation from our heart, from the inside out. Not just our behavior, but from the inside out. So it'll say things like this. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if you're trying to stop cussing or trying to stop prideful speech or trying to stop bragging or whatever it is that you're doing with your mouth, you could do a rubber band thing where you snap your wrist or have a cuss jar to have some external restraints on you. But what Jesus offers is actually changing our hearts, that we're those desires to kind of prove ourselves or to diminish somebody else, where that comes from at the heart level. If that would change, then the logic of the Bible is then what comes out of my mouth also changes. So, so from the heart transformation is actually how we're changed on the outside, right? This is I'm using an illustration, but this is a pretty deep reality. Actually, our, our church is committed to heart transformation and putting in front of you not simple behavior modification or, or participate more in churchy stuff, but actually be transformed and changed from the inside. Because when that happens, that's where real, true change actually takes place. So, so the guy who struggles with pornography will, will never not struggle with pornography until Jesus changes his heart and Christ becomes more beautiful that the rest Christ offers is more satisfying than the temporary rest that the pornography offers. And you could use filters and you could have restraints and you could kind of control things on the outside, and you should. But until Christ is more beautiful and our hearts are actually awakened and changed, we'll struggle with that. Ask any addict, that's what's going on. And the consequences of their behavior is not enough to keep it at bay. And they, they actually do love their families, but they're hurting their families because they love something else more until their hearts are changed. Okay, that's the illustration. Now, imagine this. Jesus is saying at the heart level, the way he is is to be gentle and lowly towards you. 
There's a humility in the God of the universe to move towards you, which means when he shows you mercy, he's not just condescending to you in a moment or doing the right noble thing. It's the essence of who he is. When he spills over his heart, it comes out at you in mercy. It comes out at you in gentleness and in lowliness and a kind of humility. This is Philippians 2, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God, which he had, that's his identity, something to be clung on to, but instead he emptied himself. He came into our world and he lived this life of humility and servantness so that we could be rescued and we could be saved. His heart, not just his behavior, not just his ought to or his desire or his want to, but the essence of who he is at the heart level, Jesus responds to you from this heart that's moving at a gentle and lowly and humble and merciful place. Which means when it comes to can you wear him out? What about your struggle with sin? What about if you keep doing this? Would he kind of give up? Do you have like 10 units of mercy and that's all that you get? No, no. If his heart, the essence of who he is, is merciful. And he's loving and he's holy and he's good and he's sovereign. But the essence of who he is, he is a merciful God. That means his inclination towards you is to show you mercy and grace. Okay, stop for a second. How do you see God? What do you think is his inclination towards you? When you blow it, when you're inconsistent, when you feel weak and you grab a hold of one of these things to kind of soothe the burden in a way that actually only adds more pain, what is the look on his face in your mind? Is he like disgusted by you? Is he pushing away from you? Is he hiding from you? Is he scowling at you? What's the look on his face when you blow it? Hey, what if you saw this passage the way Jesus wants you to understand it, and it becomes an interpretive lens by which you understand the heart of God to your struggle with your burdens? And you saw his face marked as one who was gentle and lowly in heart, who is showing mercy to sinners who feel overwhelmed with their burdens. He knows them. He knows where they come from. He knows what it's like to struggle. He came into our world to take on human form so that he would know what it was like to actually experience it. So we have this sympathetic high priest, Hebrews says, who knows what it's like to be us. The look on his face when you're struggling with the burdens of what someone else has done to you, what you've done, the sin of your own life and heart, not meeting up to your own expectations, living in a fallen and broken world and just being frail and limited, and the religious crushing weight that you've thought, if you just did enough, then God would finally love you, and that's folding in on itself. All of that burden, when Jesus looks at you, his smile, his face, his heart is to be gentle and lowly towards you. And he says he wants to offer rest to your soul. So his, his inclination, his, his leaning, his disposition, his reflex is actually one of mercy and grace. That is really good news for those who feel overwhelmed by their sin and by shame by the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you, to know in all of the mystery, the inclination of the heart of God, because it is his heart, not just his behavior, because it comes from his heart, he's moving towards you with mercy. I think that is amazing news. So finally in fifth, that the fifth eye is impact. What's the impact of this? And he says in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So his invitation and his initiative 
and his identity and his inclination leads to the impact of your heart and life where you could actually find rest from all of these burdens. He actually wants to give you what you need at the soul level. Again, not just the surface level, but the things where shame and sin and expectations and failure kind of touch the deep places of your heart. That's the space where he wants to give you rest. Not just reprieve so you can work harder. We'll talk next week about Sabbath. Sabbath is about recalibrating your heart as a dependent creature, as a child, so you can continue to receive from the Father. It pushes back the lie that you should be sufficient on your own or that you could be sufficient on your own. It reestablishes for us now the invitation for the gospel is to actually find rest for your souls because of what Christ has done. And the impact is actually to give you real Rest. He says he gives you rest for your souls, and there's a kind of rest that comes from justification, which is a big church word to say that God's taken the weight of your sin and he declares you righteous and forgiven and pure and free because of what Christ has done. There's a kind of rest for your weary, sin struggling, shame filled, overwhelmed soul to hear Christ took the weight of all the burdens that I'm carrying. There's a kind of rest there. And the scriptures would talk about an eternal rest, a kind of rest that still is to come where we unite ourselves with Christ for forever. And we'll look more into that, the way the Sabbath actually points us to an ultimate Sabbath rest. So there's a kind of rest now from the forgiveness of your sins, and there's an eternal rest when one day God makes all things new. And both of those become really good news for weary sinners. And the way he's accomplished it, do you want to guess it? It's through what Christ has done. It's through him bearing the weight of your sin. And this morning I was praying for you, I actually started laughing out loud, for, out loud for some of you who are like, oh sure, here's the place where you always bring it back to Jesus. We're about to go to communion, you're gonna bring it back to Jesus in this moment. And like, man, that is our only hope. Like where else would we take it? He is the one who actually has in his self, in his character, in his nature, in what he's accomplished for us, the means and the desire to give us Rest, And so we do bring it back to Jesus every week. The reason why we take communion is to remind us that there is a possibility for rest of your souls. And if you're choosing him, it's because he's shown mercy to you. And if you want to choose him, it's because he's calling you today to hear his voice and to say, I need that. Is God revealing himself to you so that you could choose and you could come? So friends, I would invite you this morning to come. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest for your souls. If that's salvation for the first time as someone who's not yet following after Jesus, come. Come come take communion as a declaration of that faith, and let's talk about that after the service. If it's you as a Christian who for six days this week have felt the weight of your humanity, the weight of your sin, would you come to Jesus? Let him give you rest at the soul level, reminding you of what he's already done, and hearing the good news that his heart is inclined towards you. It's been a heck of a week. I know you've suffered and struggled, and here he wants to give you rest for all those things. And in fact, he's already purchased it and accomplished it, and you can simply receive the nourishing reminder of his broken body and his shed blood. The way we take communion here is we have people lined up here at the front. We'll take a small piece of bread. They'll say this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And you'll dip it in the cup and they'll say this is the blood of Christ shed for your life. For your life. And when you hear life, hear rest as they say that. There'll be a gluten-free station over here to my right, your left. There's also some individual packets if that's more comfortable for you. You're welcome to do any one of those. 
But come, Jesus says. The invitation is to come. And the way a Christian comes is to come and remember the sacrifice of Christ. Let that restore and renew and refresh you. Let me pray for us and then come when you're ready. Jesus, we ask for your help now in this moment. Help to believe. You're speaking to people who are struggling to believe, who feel the same kind of doubts that we feel. And you call them to yourself and you reveal yourself to them. So would you reveal yourself in this room in ways that we run to you to unburden ourselves. Thanks for what you've done to make that possible. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.